Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, as we continue to make our way through this wonderful gospel, verse by verse, we find ourselves this morning primarily in verse 12. But I would like to remind you again of this wonderful model that Jesus has given us a model of prayer that has within it all of the components that would be honoring to the Lord with respect to our prayer. And he begins here in verse nine, and he says, pray then in this way, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Again, here we have a model, a pattern for prayer that the Lord is giving us in his Sermon on the Mount. And as I thought about this text verse 12 in particular that we will look at this morning, it came to my mind that prayer for the most part, I believe, has fallen on hard times in our evangelical culture. It should be to the Christian what breathing is to a newborn infant. It comes naturally to a newborn infant to breathe. It's a spiritual reflex, therefore, in the life of a newborn believer, or it should be where we love to rush quickly into the presence of God and and commune with him, where we come and we 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 can't wait to love and to praise him in his very throne room. For indeed, nearness to God is our only good. And, you know, it is likewise our heavenly father's greatest joy for us to do that. When you stop and think about it, when a new baby is born into a home, what is the very first thing you want that child to do? You want that child to talk to you, to communicate with you. And its first little coup, its first little especially word is something that usually causes the parents to rejoice and the phone begins to ring. And, oh, you won't believe how intelligent my little baby is. And there's all of this joy. Well, dear friends, so, too, with our heavenly father, the Lord loves to hear us talk with him. And when we pray, we communicate with him. And literally, the Lord hears us when we pray and we hear him through his word. But uh, as we think about prayer, we realize that prayer biblically exerts great power. It activates the power of God as he responds to the cries of the righteous. And because the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, our prayers are therefore aligned to the will of God and the purpose of God when we pray. But unfortunately, as I said earlier, I believe prayer has fallen on hard times in the church. Sometimes we tend to be like rebellious teenagers who gradually convince themselves that they are invincible, that they are omniscient, that they really don't need anything from their parents. They become self-absorbed and self-centered and being absolutely certain of their self-reliance. They have no need to communicate to their moms or dad 
And sometimes I believe as Christians, that must be the way we get where somehow we fail to realize that we need the Lord every moment and that he loves to hear our voice. And beyond that, we, as we come into prayer, show him great glory and then we petition him and he works in our lives and so on. But friends, beyond that, do you realize we are commanded to pray? We are commanded to pray. Jesus said in Luke 18 that he wants us to pray at all times and not to lose heart. And the Apostle Paul said in First Thessalonians 5 and verse 17, pray without ceasing. In other words, he wants us to stay in constant communion with the Lord all day long. It's the idea of having a God conscious state of mind. But unfortunately, the discipline of prayer is something that many people really struggle with, if they're honest. I know over the years, as I've counseled with folks, the vast majority of Christians that I deal with will admit to a weak prayer life. It's just not a priority. Really, the only time they pray, they will acknowledge, will be when they're in desperate need of help. There's really very few people that know what it is to have a have a rich and sweet communion with the Lord in prayer and to humble themselves before the word, even as they pray and to literally pray the word and to enjoy the presence of the Lord, even in a subjective way. Prayer meetings are typically very poorly attended in churches. It's because it's simply not a priority for most people to come together in corporate prayer. Before we look at the text, I might add that I have found over the years three factors that produce praying people. Thought I would share with them, share them with you very briefly. I found, first of all, that the more people are involved in life on life ministry. The more they will pray. In other words, when you find people dealing head on with the wickedness of friends and families and and, and they're really mixing it up, if you will, with folks. They're really sharing their faith. They're one-on-one -on -one involved with people in the conflict between right and wrong. And, and they're really trying to show people the gospel of Christ. Where they're doing battle against sin and Satan, that's when you'll find people with a very disciplined prayer life. In fact, you won't be able to survive the battle without it. The warfare is too great and the wounds of the battle are too severe. By the way, this is why we read in the New Testament that the Lord frequently went into secret places to pray. A second reason that I have found that will cause people to pray would be when they are suffering some form of persecution or enduring some kind of severe trial, then you'll see people praying. And I mean more than just the physical problems that we will have. So you will see people pray when they're involved in life on life ministry, when they're under persecution enduring a trial. And then thirdly, I've seen praying people come out of the context of those who will frequently humble themselves before the word of God in disciplined Bible study and meditation. I say more than just study. There are many people who study the Bible. They have a great head knowledge of Scripture, but I'm talking about the type of knowledge that produces a brokenness of heart 
where there is an ongoing sense of our own sinfulness and a willingness to come before the Lord and to confess those sins and to grow in the grace of knowledge and knowledge of Christ. The type of Bible study that produces confession and produces repentance and produces spiritual growth. So when I have people come to me and say, you know, Pastor, I need prayer with my spiritual life. Or I mean, help with my spiritual life, especially in the area of prayer. I will often ask them, well, I'm curious. Have you targeted someone for evangelism? Who, who are you discipling? Where are you really mixing it up with other people in terms of showing them the truth of the gospel? And if they have a blank look on their face, then I know that's one of the reasons why their prayer life is so weak. And then also to ask them about their just the priority of the word. And friends, I might say that if, if I'm describing you, I would humbly ask you to confess this, this type of kind of apathy and indifference and frankly, hypocrisy to claim that you love and serve the Lord. And yet you really want nothing to do with him in the private communion of prayer. Well, knowing all of these sinful predispositions with which we wrestle, the Lord teaches us to pray here in Matthew six. As I've said, it's a, a marvelous pattern that really outlines the crucial components of God honoring prayer by way of review. It's divided into two sections, each having three petitions. The first section, verses 9 through 10, addresses God's glory. We have petitions, therefore, regarding his name, where we acknowledge our spiritual origin. We've been over this before. But by, again, way of reminder, we acknowledge that he is our heavenly father. He has adopted us as sons. And all of these glorious theological truths should, should be ringing in our minds as we come before the father, as we hallow his name. Or in other words, as we acknowledge the sum of his attributes contained within his name, as we set it apart with an understanding of his supreme holiness and his sovereignty and his glory. And then we also have a petition regarding his kingdom. That the kingdom of God would reign in the hearts of men, certainly in our hearts, and that um, it will ultimately be experienced physically during the millennial kingdom. We pray with respect to his will. We ask that his will basically becomes our will and that it will prevail over the entire earth as it does in heaven. And then that second section has three petitions as well. And that's where we're at again today. It is the section that addresses man's need. We go from God's glory to man's need. And there we have petitions about our daily sustenance of life, including uh, everything that we would need in our health, our food and so on, our daily bread, as we discussed last week. And then there is the petition that we will look look at today for forgiveness and then thirdly, for protection from temptation. So we look at. Verse 12 this morning. Where it says, and forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. There are three concepts I want to draw your attention to this morning in this little verse. First of all, our need for daily pardon. Secondly, our provision for daily pardon. And thirdly, the precondition for daily pardon. First of all, may I draw your attention, dear friends, to our need for daily pardon, for daily cleansing. What is implied here is that we must first recognize that we are in need of constant forgiveness. Do you ever think of that? 
We need a daily pardon of sin, our spiritual debt to God. Verse 12 says, for we are to say, forgive us. The original language, it literally means to cancel. It means to remit, to pardon. Father, erase the guilt resulting from wrongdoing. And that is the debt. Forgive what? Well, it's our debts. Now, this is not some financial obligation here that we're praying for, friends. This is not a pleading for some divinely sanctioned bankruptcy. Not at all. But this rather is pleading for forgiveness for a moral debt that we have to God, something that we owe God. The original language uses a term that is one of five New Testament Greek terms that um, for sin, referring in this case to the moral or spiritual debt to God that must be paid. So this is the second petition of this section. And it is for an even greater need than the first daily provision for physical needs, which are much more obvious to us than our need for daily forgiveness. And why is that? Why is it that we are so quick to run to the Lord with all of our daily needs, but yet when it comes time to run to him for forgiveness for our daily debts, we really don't hardly think of that. Well, friends, it's quite it's quite obvious. We seldom see our sin. May I ask you, how many specific sins could you list for which you asked the Lord to forgive you in the last week? And unfortunately, usually when we do confess our sins, if we do it at all, those confessions are watered down with all kinds of rationalizations and justifications and that make the sin seem barely worth mentioning. And how often do we mitigate both the seriousness and the consequences of our sin by defining them in vague generalities? It's almost as if we come to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I admit to you that I am a sinful person. Notice how vague. Uh, Lord, please forgive me my sins in general, whatever you think they are, because I really can't say for certain uh, frankly, I don't really see them probably as big a deal as you do, but, but Lord, whatever they are, forgive me. That tends to be the attitude. But dear friends, how different than praying, Lord, forgive me for lashing out at my husband this morning in arrogant anger. Lord, forgive me for the hatred that swelled up in my heart when that woman cut me off on the interstate. <laughs> and forgive me for the revenge I tried to seek by doing the same to her. You get the picture? Lord, forgive me specifically for the angry bitterness that I harbor towards so-and-so. Lord, forgive me for my lack of faith and my lack of contentment manifested by my constant complaining and bickering about my situation. Lord, forgive my spiritual apathy because I confess that in reality I have no real appetite for your word. I just kind of play the churchianity thing. That is so indicative of my culture. Lord, forgive me for my immoral fantasy life fueled by the movie that I watched last night. Lord, forgive me for my pride in the way I I try to get people to see me as spiritual by dominating conversations like I did in Bible study last night. Lord, forgive me for the way I try to control others and the way I criticized so and so yesterday. 
Lord, forgive me for the way that I pout and I whine in public like I did yesterday in church, trying to get people to feel sorry for me. You see, friends, it's this type of confession that the Lord that the Lord longs for us to have in terms of cleansing that daily debt. And I would submit to you that based on this text and others, he wants us to keep a zero balance with him, owing him nothing through constant confession. I've spoke about this before. It's the mark of a genuine believer to be a constant confessor of sin. First John one, eight and nine. John is warning believers in this text. And he says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, in the original language, it means to literally say the same thing about. In other words, if we agree with God about his perspective of our sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, some will say, well, I thought my sins were already forgiven at salvation. I I, I thought that our debt had been paid, that the penalty had been paid, that he paid the debt that I could not pay. Well, that's true. Man cannot be freed from the condemnation of death until he has done all that the law requires. And that is impossible. So Christ comes and he pays the penalty. And indeed, in a judicial sense, we are no longer debtors to God because of sin. At salvation, we were declared righteous. We're no longer under condemnation. We're no longer under judgment. No one at all, either human Not even demons, not even Satan himself can bring a charge against God's elect. We understand that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He bore our iniquities on the tree, suffered and died in our place and so on. But friends, please hear this. We are still required to obey, not to earn our salvation, but to express our gratitude for it. So therefore, in a judicial sense, We are no longer under condemnation. The debt has been paid. His righteousness has been imputed to our account. We've been declared pardoned, justified, and so on. But we still sin. And sin requires ongoing forgiveness. I've spoke about this before on several occasions. But I, I understand from talking with some of you that perhaps you're still a bit confused. So let me repeat some things that I've said before to make sure you understand The two kinds of forgiveness that we see in the scripture. There is, first of all, a judicial forgiveness that I've just talked about or a forensic forgiveness in our justification. When we were declared righteous based upon the imputed righteousness of Christ, literally when we were born again, that happened. At that point, we were forgiven from the very penalty of sin. Our eternal debt was ultimately paid by Christ. It is settled before God as our eternal judge, but there are still consequences of sin in life. And so, therefore, there is another kind of forgiveness that we read about in the Bible, and that's the fatherly forgiveness, the paternal forgiveness in our sanctification, not in our justification. That's taken care of once for all. But in our sanctification, that glorious process whereby we we become In a process, we become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. That process, according to Paul in Philippians 2.12, where we've got to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's a, a need for forgiveness in that process. 
Because we remain incarcerated in our unredeemed humanness, we continue to sin. Take your Bibles and turn to John 13 for just a moment. A wonderful illustration that we've examined before, but I think it's appropriate to do once again. There's a wonderful illustration here of this distinction between our judicial forgiveness that took place once and for all and the fatherly forgiveness that is required in our sanctification. You might remember in John 13, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. He's ready to recline and to eat with them. And of course, the men have dirty feet and there needed to be a lowly servant there to wash the feet, but no one was there. So. Our Lord Jesus assumed that lowly position, that position none of the disciples did. And so we read something very interesting in verse 4 of chapter 13. That um, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples feet. And to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. In other words, there were implications here of the cross that he didn't fully understand. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you. You have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. So here we see that Jesus says to Peter that he is basically clean. In other words, there's no need for a full body wash here, only your feet. And the Lord's point here is is unmistakable. It's an unmistakable analogy that is so insightful in distinguishing these two kinds of forgiveness. You see, in verse 10, dear friends, the bathing illustrates the, the judicial forensic forgiveness that was that was his and that is ours and our justification. You see, at that point, Peter was fully bathed. He, he was cleansed. He was declared righteous. The ultimate debt had been paid on the basis of the Lord's upcoming death on the cross. Peter did not need to be bathed again in his justification. That, that was a divine cleansing that took place once and for all. And there was nothing deficient in God's judicial act whereby Peter was declared righteous. You see, there's no need to be saved more than once. You're not saved over and over again. There's no need to be re-justified. The Bible knows nothing of that. But there is an ongoing need for sanctification. Justification happens once. Sanctification is a process whereby we are set aside to become conformed to the image of Christ little by little by God's divine work within us. So therefore, the foot washing illustrates the fatherly forgiveness, the paternal forgiveness that is necessary in our sanctification. You see, God as our judge was satisfied completely because now he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're cleansed. But God as our father desires an unbroken fellowship with his children. 
But because of sin, that fellowship is broken from time to time. It dishonors him. It displeases him. And sin retards that glorious process of of sanctification where we're conformed into the image of Christ. Sin distorts his image on us. And those characteristics that we should manifest as his son. So, friends, the dirt here on the feet symbolizes the need for a daily cleansing. Without a routine washing of sin through daily confession, the filth of sin begins to accumulate as we walk through life. And so, so therefore, without confession and repentance, the dirt of our iniquities build up. And what happens when sin builds up in our life, dear friends? We begin to forfeit blessing. We begin to place ourselves in the pathway of the Father's chastening. Beloved, please understand that while your justification pays the ultimate debt for the penalty of sin, it does not free us from the power and the presence of sin, nor does the grace of justification somehow nullify the consequences of sin. That's why in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us that because of sin, many in the church are weak and they're sick and some of them even sleep or in other words, they die. And what a tragedy it is. I've seen it over and over again to watch Christians struggle under the weight of divine chastening, all because they refuse to keep short accounts with God, because they refuse to humbly submit to the truth of Scripture in various areas in their life. And therefore, they accumulate large sums of debt before God. And as a result, they forfeit blessing. As a result, typically their lives are in shambles. Their hearts are filled with guilt and they are miserable. They're discouraged. They're dissatisfied. And friends, such is the consequence of the malignancy of sin. If it is not eradicated through confession and repentance, that causes the father to cleanse us and to forgive us. I see this in young people floundering in confusion. Too proud to admit that they're confused, slaves to their lusts. Every now and then, and sometimes I feel like I just want to get rid of the television. I mean, there's some things I love to see and other things I just flipping by. It, it, it's just enough to to nauseate me. And every now and then I'll flip by and I'll see some of the music that our young people are listening to. And, and I hate to even call it music. But I'm amazed to watch what goes on and the gyrations and the immorality and all of the things. I mean, you can just glance at it for a second and you can see that these people are utterly consumed by Satan. It's no wonder why teen suicide is up. And I give you that as an example of what happens with the metastasizing corruption of sin. And certainly it is going to ultimately destroy a non-believer But friends, even in a believer, if we allow sin in our lives, and I'm using the illustration of the teenagers, if we allow that in our lives, little by little, it destroys, it disfigures. I see it even in Christian adults where they have not kept short accounts with God and their marriages are a travesty. They live as roommates at best, as enemies at worst. Their children are heartbreaks. Men and women often filled with bitterness and envy and jealousy. They're filled with fears and anxiety. They're often depressed. 
Their lives are characterized by life dominating sins. They have idols in their heart where they exchange worshiping the true and the living God for other things that consume their thoughts and their energies. And friends, I would submit to you that if you're here today and you've never confessed Christ as Savior, even today, your guilty conscience serves you a subpoena to appear before God's bar of justice, a holy tribunal which will easily, easily convict you. Yet where there is repentance, dear friend, there is forgiveness. But for those of us who know Christ, and this is the point of our Lord's words here in verse 12, In Matthew 6, for those of us who know Christ, please hear this, unconfessed sin will even destroy our lives as believers. You sow the wind, you reap what? You reap the whirlwind. And if it is there in your heart, even now as I speak, I would submit to you that if you listen carefully, you will hear that in the background... It continues to scream at you through your conscience, even though you try to drown it out with all of your rationalizations and justifications. It continues to scream at you that your debts before God are accumulating. And if it hasn't happened already, dear friend, you will find yourself in the midst of the Father's chastening because the Lord chastens those whom He loves. So it is crucial that we understand these great truths about sin and the need for forgiveness. So that's the need for the daily pardon. But notice the provision for the daily pardon in verse 12. Provision that we have for daily forgiveness that comes through the merciful father that we address. Our heavenly father loves to cross out our debts as quickly as we confess them. I think of the psalmist in Psalm 32 Remember that great psalm where David speaks of the almost unbearable weight of divine chastening in his life. In verse 3 he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. In other words, there is a, there is a physical degeneration that is a component of unconfessed sin in the life of a believer. He says, for day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to thee. You see, there's the confession. And he says, my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found great Puritan described this time when David confessed his sins in this way. And I quote, he acknowledged the debt and God crossed the book. God crossed the black lines of his sins with the red lines of his son's blood, end quote. Oh, child of God, our father has made a provision for us in Christ to forgive us. And he longs to forgive us so that he can fellowship with us. He longs to bless us. He longs to use us. And he longs to fill our hearts with joy. Even as he did David later on in that same psalm, after the cleansing of confession, David goes on to write, Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. 
Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. There is another amazing illustration of divine forgiveness from the from the merciful hand of the father that we read about in Acts chapter nine. You need not turn there. You might remember the story of Paul's conversion when he was Saul. Remember, the text tells us that Saul was breathing out threats and breathing out murder against Christians. And then divine grace came on that Damascus road and the Shekinah glory of God enveloped him. The Lord appeared to him and God not only covered him with the glory of his light, but also overwhelmed him with the truth of conviction and even blinded him temporarily. And the text tells us that his companions, Saul's companions, who were also terrified, led him to Damascus. And then the Lord appears in a vision to a man named Ananias. And here's what he said to Ananias. Arise. And go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Now listen to this. For behold, he is praying. Friends, that that, that little phrase is precious to my heart. Behold, he is praying. Literally in the Greek, it's the Lord is saying, you're not going to believe this. Consider this. This is an amazing thought. Ananias, you need to hear this now. Saul of Tarsus, the man that even brings about fear within you, Ananias. He is now communing with me in prayer. Well, indeed, as you read the story, for three days, Saul prayed. Naturally, he would. He had been given spiritual eyes to see, even though he was blind. Think about this. The unceasing and spontaneous prayer is what is, will always be the mark of a transformed heart. The Apostle Paul undoubtedly was lost in the wonder and the grace of what had happened to him. And now the gaze of his heart was fixed upon the Lord Jesus, the one whom he had been persecuting. And because of the provision of salvation through Christ, think about it. The one who was once a blasphemer of Christ suddenly becomes a servant of Christ. The one who once mocked the cross now is willing to bear it as a soldier of the cross. And like every truly regenerate warrior of the faith, he begins his spiritual march where he needs to begin it on his knees. Behold, he is praying. Dear friends, can the Lord say that of you? But we also see in this text that there is a precondition for daily pardon. The end of verse 12 in Matthew 6, it says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. By the way, later on in verses 14 and 15, he says, for if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. Friends, I I don't want you to be confused here. Again, God will never rescind the permanent acquittal in our justification. That will never happen. Indeed, our forgiveness is eternal. However, he will withhold temporal forgiveness if we refuse to be forgiving, if we refuse to forgive others. Friends, what hypocrisy is this to think that somehow 
we who have been forgiven the greater debt would refuse to forgive the lesser. We have been forgiven so much as we have offended a holy God. And yet we're not going to forgive someone else who have offended us in some piddly little way. Friends, we, we've all been sin, sinned against. I, I recognize that. I mean, that's part of life. Welcome to a fallen world. Get over it. All right. That's part of life. But, you know, even when we're sinned against, we are taught all through Scripture to nurture a forgiving spirit. I know some have been sinned against worse, worse than others. Maybe some of you have been abused in some physical way. Such a heinous thing. I can't imagine it. But regardless of the sin that has been committed against you, we have been told to have an attitude of forgiveness. Now, certainly, we, can, we cannot fully forgive someone until they ask for repentance. And sometimes that may never, never come. But we're to have a heart not only receptive to someone's repentance, but one that is actually praying for it. The scriptures teach us that we are most like God when we forgive. You realize that even when fellowship must be broken because of some some offense with a brother and sister in Christ. Because of their sin, we should still pray that somehow there can be repentance on that person's part and there can be reconciliation. And then when it comes, we need to be quick to forgive like the father of the prodigal. Bottom line, what this text is telling us there is a precondition for our temporal forgiveness in our sanctification from our father. And that is that we are also forgiving to say it differently. God will treat you the same way you treat others. You know what happens when we fail to forgive? Have you ever thought about that? The wound never heals. In fact, it grows deeper because what tends to happen to your friends is in our imagination we relive the offense we relive the pain and because of the nature of our imagination and the nature of our hearts what happens every time we retell a story it gets a little bit more exaggerated doesn't it it gets a little worse and a little worse and a little worse it's like leaven that's what sin is so often compared to and what does leaven do it expands. I've been with people before and you ask them about some situation and if it was some offense and they're unforgiving, it's fascinating to see what will happen immediately. They will tell you with great passion, every detail with their teeth gritted, they'll go through it and you, you, you can't hardly get it to turn off. Something that happened 30 years ago. It's a tragic thing. You see, rather than seeking to be reconciled with someone that has offended you, I mean, within reasonable limits. An unforgiving person will seek revenge, not reconciliation. And then what happens? Well, that unforgiveness begins to to forfeit blessing in our life. It begins to destroy marriages and families and fellowship with other people, even destroy churches. And it will destroy you. It's like the unforgiving slave of Matthew 18. Remember that parable? After he had been forgiven the large debt, he refused to forgive a fellow slave of a lesser debt. 
And as a result, in verse 34 of Matthew 18, we read, And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Literally, what that text is saying is that although this slave's debt was forgiven with his master, now the master would chasten him until he learned to forgive. Ask yourself, could this be me? May I give you a little test to see if you're an unforgiving person? Do you have some person in your life that causes you to feel great bitterness and anger whenever you think of them? And you have to honestly admit that you do not pray for that person. You do not love them with that agape love that seeks their best good. You do not pray that they will come to a point of conviction and repentance so that you can be reconciled with them. Do you find yourself rehearsing the painful circumstance that you experienced maybe one time, maybe many times? And perhaps they've even asked for forgiveness. And you've said, oh, well, you're forgiven, but down deep, you're still wanting to make them pay. Friends, if, if that is you, then I would submit to you that at some level in your life, the Father, because He loves you, is chastening you even now. And you have probably been given over to the torturers of life, as the parable suggests in Matthew 18. It's easy to spot unforgiving people who have been given over to the torturers. I've worked with them for years. I've struggled with it in my life. They will typically be sour, sullen, miserable people, often depressed, easily offended, hot-tempered, a chip on their shoulder. Many times they will be jealous. They will be lonely because they typically drive everybody away. Who wants to be around a bitter person? Very often they will find relief in some kind of drug or alcohol. They will often be critical complainers, condescending, rude, controlling. And when you look at their lives, they seem to leave a trail of broken relationships. And usually there's a cloud of strife that just kind of follows them wherever they go. And eventually, bitterness, as is suggested in 1 Corinthians 11, destroys their health. Oh, dear friend, be quick to forgive. And when you forgive, do it as the Lord does. Forget it. Forget it. The, the scriptures talk about how the Lord, when we have confessed our sins, he, he takes them and He casts them as far as the east is from the west. He throws them and buries them into the depths of the sea. And the original language indicates that He chooses to remember them no more. He's omniscient. He could. But He chooses... To remember them no more. It's over with. It's confessed. That's how we should be as well. As the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Friends, let's be quick to seek daily pardon. To take care of those debts that accumulate, the dirt on our feet. And be quick to forgive those who have sinned against us. And may our prayer, the prayer of our heart, 
be as follows. Lord, cleanse me daily from my sin that I may be debt free and with forgiveness may I win more joy, O Christ, in Thee. Let's pray together. Father, Your words are so clear to us, and yet, Lord, even as I preach them, I recognize the difficulty in living consistently with them. So, Lord, I, I just come before You as Your servant, pleading on my behalf, on, on behalf of this entire body, Lord, that You would help us to become increasingly aware of both the seriousness and the consequences of daily sin. Lord, may we learn to keep short accounts with You, because, Lord, we want the Father's blessing, not the chastening. And yet, Lord, we thank You that You chasten us because You love us. And Lord, if there be a person in our mind, in our heart right now, with whom we have some bitterness, some, some anger, and that we're unforgiving, oh Lord, may we confess that. And may we be quick to acknowledge that even to that person. And Lord, to seek and to pray for reconciliation. And Lord, even if that person chooses not to seek forgiveness, even if they choose not to repent, Lord, I pray that our attitude will be one of forgiveness towards them and that our passion will be to continue to pray for them that they might come to an understanding of their sins so that fellowship can be restored. And then finally, Lord, if there be one here today that knows You not as Savior, oh Lord, again, I plead with You as Your servant that You would overwhelm them with conviction. And may they come to the foot of the cross and experience the miracle of new birth as they confess their sins and repent of them. Lord, thank You for this time. We pray that You've been honored in it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.